eight years old. A lot of us can remember when she was first born. She's grown a lot. We are going to be picking up this morning in where we left off in First Timothy chapter 5. Uh, we are getting close to the end of the book, very close to the end of chapter 5. And then there's chapter 6 coming after that. Uh, I haven't decided for certain where we're going to go after we finish up this particular book. So if you have any special ideas or special thoughts on it, I'm not going to promise you that I will necessarily uh, abide by them. But if you have any preferences or anything at this time, uh, it would be very appropriate for you to share those with me. Uh, and, And when I say that, let me just... One of, the, one of the neat things is this, is I've been pastor here now for a long time. And the next year is going to be our 25th anniversary here at Springs, if you can imagine that. And we will be having a big banquet, as we always do at our five-year marks. But the thing about it is, is even though I've done some preaching through the old, in, in the Old Testament, quite a bit actually, uh, by the time we finish First Timothy, we will have finished just almost everything in the New Testament. The only large book left is Revelation, so I'm kind of thinking about doing that one, and you can understand why I approach it with a little bit of fear and trepidation. And if we go into Revelation, it's going to be a very lengthy sermon series, I would imagine, that will go on for several years probably. Uh, So anyway, uh, be in prayer about that for me. Uh, Usually what I do is I'll do a New Testament book and an Old Testament book and vice versa and bounce back and forth, so I may be jumping to the Old Testament. But just pray for the enlightenment of the Lord to come on me so I would really have a good idea where he wants us to go next. I would appreciate that very much. Uh, As we know, there's a good bit of the book that deals with the offices of the church. We we consider that all the way back in Chapter 3. And in Chapter 5, Paul has returned back to some particular messages that, that he has in regard to the office of, of elder um, in, in the church. Uh, and, and as we were studying this particular passage last time I was with you, uh, he told us, and this is in verse 19, do not receive any accusation against an elder except on the, uh, the basis of uh, two or more wit- or three witnesses. Uh, we understand that he wasn't making them, giving them special rules or special privileges because they were elders, that he was simply telling them to, to treat other people, to treat them the same way that you would anyone else, by the same standard, and that is not to receive some accusation brought about an elder if only one person uh, came forth with that. But it, it's just the standard of establishing truth in the Scriptures. Truth is established on the testimony of two or three people, not one. And we understand why, because we know there are people who will bring forth false charges against other people. And that's true of teaching elders as well as it is uh, everyone else. He also made it very clear that when, when it comes to, to the point that such situations have to be addressed, where teaching elders are found in the wrong, they've been proven in the wrong, and they've refused to repent and turn away from it and acknowledge it, then there's a way of dealing with them. But it's the same way that we deal with other people who are in sin and refuse to acknowledge and recognize it, and that is to bring it uh, before everyone else, the church, 
uh, as an end result. He then says these things. Verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias. Do nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too heart, uh, hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment for others. Their sins follow after Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So let's go back to verse 21. The first thing I want you to notice here is Paul is not just suggesting to Timothy that he do this particular thing. Uh, uh, But what he's saying here is he says, I solemnly charge you. In a sense, he's saying, I command you. So this is not something that... That Timothy has any opportunity to choose to do or not to do. He's been charged to do it. And not only charged to do it, but charged to do it in, in the presence or basically with the witness of God, uh, the Father, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of the heavenly angels. Doing these types of things are very difficult. And let me say they ought to be very difficult. If they're not difficult, there's something wrong with us. If, 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 it's, not, if it's not very difficult for us in, to enter into situations where we have to pass judgment on another brother or another sister, it can never be something that we do lightly. And it should always be something that to some degree is heart-wrenching for us to participate in. If it is not, what does it say about our own hearts? What does it say about us? Well, it says this. It says that we are basically self-righteous people. We see the sins of uh, other people very, very clearly and see their need of repentance, but we really don't see a whole lot of need of repentance uh, for ourselves because of our own sin. Bias is something, or partiality, or favoritism, is, is a practice, I think, that is, is instilled to some degree in all of us. In other words, what I'm saying here is this, is we have a tendency to show favoritism to particular people. Very often, one of the people that we give favoritism to is ourselves. Uh, it's, It's very interesting. You know, you have conversations with people throughout the years, and I can't tell you how many times I sat and I and I've listened to someone describe someone else doing something or saying something that someone's taken exception to uh, and, and all of that. And while listening to this person, what I'm thinking is, do you know who you're describing? You're describing yourself. This is the very impression that other people have on you that you see so clearly in others, but you do not see it in yourself. We have this tendency to excuse what we do. 
and at the same time to hold other people account and, 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 and for what they do. And sometimes doing the same thing. You understand that still there's this vestige of sin in us, and it encourages us to be that way. To be blind to our own sin. And at the same time, to, to astutely see and condemn other people for theirs. My friends, that is not grace. That is not grace alone at all. You wonder why I remind us of grace so often, and it's because we, can, it's because we so very easily forget that we have been saved by grace and by grace only. God's grace granted to us who are in our own eyes ought to be the most undeserving. Favoritism is also something that's expected in many circles. Favoritism is always something that leaders are tempted to grant to certain people. We can understand how husbands probably have an inclination to show favor to their wives. And let me tell you, that's a good thing. Women, on the other hand, probably have some inclination to show favoritism to their husband. Sometimes we show favoritism to our children. And my whole point here is it's it's a natural inclination for us to do this. And I would say that there are times when there's some deal of appropriacy to it. But being in a position of leadership, there there is always, always a challenge to show favoritism to particular people. One of the reasons we do things the way we do here is, is you need to understand that when it comes time to, for, for us to open up to the congregation for office for nominations, we don't have a session meeting, and we don't sit around, and we don't say, well, this is the person I would like to see nominated, and we need to talk to people, and we need to make sure that so-and-so gets nominated this particular office. We don't even have those conversations for a lot of reasons. And one of those is this. is if we did, there would be a sense in which we're showing favoritism to particular people. People that we want to see nominated and eventually elected to office. You guys do it. We don't. The only thing the session does is we do your bidding. You do the nomination. We do the training. Yes, we have to have final approval. But we have never one time ever denied a nomination that has been made by this congregation of any person. So you may sit there today and say, well, I know this session probably is the one who ultimately worked things, rigged things, did things in such a manner that the men they wanted were the ones who were eventually elected. But what I'm telling you is it simply is not true. Favoritism is a disease that is, you know, just inundating our whole culture. 
and you see it from the top down. What would you say is the biggest issue, the biggest problem in Washington today? I mean, there's all kinds of things that you could say, but what I would say to ultimately it comes down to this is favoritism. Favoritism. That certain people are looked upon as being in different positions than other people, and because that is true, they have special privileges. There's one rule for them, and there's one rule for everybody else. I mean, do you see this? Do you see it? It's just, it's just all over the culture today that favorites are given to all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons. Maybe okay out there, guys, or maybe accepted practice out there, but it's not accepted practice in here. There are not, there's not one set of rules. There's not one set of criteria that elders abide by and are held to in a totally different one for everybody else. That does not exist in the true church of Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. The same rules apply to us that apply to everyone else. I have a tendency to be biased. I've been involved in some very heart-wrenching things that have taken place at Presbytery level. I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've been involved in some of the most cherishing and most memorable and, and heartfelt and deep-felt and spiritual things there, too. You need to understand that. But there have been a couple of disciplinary cases that have become, come before Presbytery that had to do with teaching elders that I knew that were friends of mine, that I knew more on a, on a personal level. One of them very, very, I could have maybe called them one of my very best friends in the whole world, ever. And let me tell you, when I found out about this particular one, I was inclined to show favoritism. I was inclined to do as, they, as, as this person was encouraging me to, to keep it to myself and let us work it out between the two of us. I was so tempted to do that. I wanted so much to do that because I knew what, what the other alternative was, and that was to take it to Presbytery, and I knew it would become public knowledge. And this person would be absolutely disgraced. So I was very tempted to show favoritism. But I didn't. On the other side of it, let me tell you, it was worth all of the hurt and all of the anger and all of the heart-wrenching and everything else. Because the outcome became a blessing even for this person. If I had done it my way, lessons would not have been learned. People would not have grown. My own understanding of grace would have been far less. 
There was another situation. It was one of my former professors, man that I had a, a huge amount of respect for. Uh, I could mention his name, and some of you here would even recognize it. But he was, uh, he was brought before Presbytery on the charge of divorcing his wife without biblical grounds. And many of us knew nothing about this until it was uh, at the Presbytery meeting when we were going to have to take some action one way or another to pursue this or not. And so you can understand, I'm sitting there and I'm hearing this story unfold. And I'm going, why didn't I know about this? I haven't had time to think about it. I haven't had time to, 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 to take it all in. And now I've got to make this decision whether to act this way or that way. I encouraged, in a sense, Presbytery to show a little favoritism. Because let me tell you, this is not your standard presbyter. This was a man, a seminary professor, a doctor that had been teaching in seminaries for probably 40 years at that time. A man well known and respected in our presbytery. A man who the last time prior to that that we disciplined a pastor actually preached a sermon. I mean, I suggested that maybe, I mean, basically what we did is we charged a committee to do this, to investigate this and actually conclude the business. In other words, determine what Presbytery's outcome is going to be and just report back to us the next Presbytery meeting. Which they did. Because they were empowered by Presbytery to do that. I was wrong. For them to do what I was encouraging them to do would have been to show favoritism toward them, and thankfully Presbytery did not listen to me. Because we always have to remember this, that elders can't use a different rule for themselves as they use for everyone else. They were held to the very same standard as everyone else's. So we cannot be granted special standards when it comes to us. Because ultimately it comes down to this. It comes down to the church. What is the best thing for the church as a whole? And that is always this, to do what God instructs us to do, just as he has here. To proceed with what he's told us to proceed with and to do it with an air of no favoritism toward anyone. That all of us, let me say this, if, if all of us ever are on the same ground anywhere, it ought to be here. It's got to be here. So do nothing in a spirit of partiality. 
Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. In other words, what he's saying here, if you think about what we've talked about previous to this, this laying on of hands has to do with ordination. He's saying here, don't ordain men to the office of teaching elder hastily. Don't do it lightly. Don't run to do it. Take your time. That makes reasonable and logical sense. Because what you're doing with these men is you're entrusting the care and the, the, the watch care over the church of Jesus Christ into their hands. It would be unwise to not go slowly. There's only one time that we've gone through this whole process of nomination and training and election. Uh, that things did not turn out so good. It was a long time ago, so most of you don't even remember it. But there was a particular man that had been nominated for office, and uh, and there were there was concerns that were expressed in regard to that particular person, and they were legitimate concerns uh, and all of that. So there was, a, there was some degree of hesitation on the part of the elders to approve this particular person. Uh, but we did it with hesitation, and I share those hesitations personally with that man and his wife in private. Uh, his elected office, and things went south pretty quick. <laughs> and when all was said and done, it was uh, basically uh, upheaval within the church and, you know, this, that, and the other, and all of that. So we learned that lesson early on. And I just want to say this to you. There may come a time when you nominate someone for office, and we, and, and we say to you, we, we cannot approve this person. You need to understand some things, and one of those is this is very often the session the elders are in knowledge of information that you do not have. That if you did have, it might change your perspective on things a great deal. There actually are occasions when maybe one of the other elders knows something about something I don't know, but probably more than likely there's, there's information that I know sometimes that the other elders don't know. Sometimes people share things with me, very private things that I have to keep to myself with full confidence. So what I want to say to you this morning is this, is we should not elect men to office that we don't know. It takes a little time to get to know men. We should know them. And we should watch as their faith is tested and see what the outcome happens to be. We would never put anyone in office whose faith has not been tested. Most of you know something of me, something of my history. Became a Christian in a miraculous kind of way. Acknowledged by a lot of people. My best friend told me, he said, Keith, he said, you're the last person on the face of the earth I ever thought would believe in Christ. He was dumbfounded. 
but I was on a, I got, I was put on a fast track, and, and I look back on it now, and I'm thinking it was just, it was so, I was teaching Bible studies when I had been a Christian for about six months. I was a deacon in the church after I'd been a Christian for about a year. I was a ruling elder in the church when I'd been a Christian for maybe three years. My faith had not been sufficiently tested. It could have blown up in not only in my face, but in the face of the church very easily. And it's a miracle it didn't. So I just want to remind us this morning that... uh, when it comes to, to making men deacons and elders, that we need to do it with caution, with reason, with logic. But at the same time, we have to be cautious not to harm the church by withholding from them the one that God has appointed to do a particular thing. To understand there has to be a balance here. You know, what I would say to you, the balance is this, is that we always err when we err and we're going to err. We're, we're always we're going to err. It just, it's just a fact of life. It's a matter of being a human. We're going to make mistakes. That whenever we err, as Christians, we must err on the side of grace. Not the other way around. He says here, and this share, uh, you know, when you do this too hastily, then you share a responsibility for the sins of others. In other words, if you put someone in office and they sin and you you nominated that person, you voted for that person, and you approved that person as a fellow elder, there's a sense in which you share in all of that. That makes you feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? Makes me feel uncomfortable. So how do we keep from letting that happen? Well, we really know the guys that are coming into office. We really know their hearts. We've seen them tested in the fire. They stood the test. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I might shock some of you this morning. Jesus really did turn water into wine, and he really was at a party when he was at the feast, the wedding feast at Cana. He really did do that. The scriptures are as plain as they can be. It was wine. He used, in, in the Gospels, used the, the Greek word for wine, not grape juice, not, not this, that, or the other, but, it's, but it, the, the term is used exclusively to mean wine like you and I understand wine to be. In spite of that, there are Christians who believe that the partaking of any kind of alcohol for any reason, at any time, and any amount, is a sin. 
The Bible never says that. The Bible does say that drunkenness is a sin and all of the sins that flow forth from it. We have every reason, brothers and sisters, to think and believe and understand that Jesus and the apostles drank wine on occasion. Can you imagine? That's not me speaking, that's scripture. This is not the only argument you have for it here. So let's talk about this alcohol thing a little bit. Well, notice here Paul is telling him to do it for a reason, and that is evidently Timothy had trouble with his stomach, maybe digesting food. Alcohol helps that. Mulsifies fat, makes them easier to digest. Very often when I'm out at restaurants, I will have a beer. A beer. For the very same reason. Now, as we talk about this, we need to understand that we have some liberty in regard to this particular thing. But again, Scripture does not condemn the consumption of alcohol, but Scripture does, consu- uh, does condemn the overconsumption of alcohol. Drunkenness. And we have all lived in the world long enough to understand that drunkenness very often has destroyed people's lives and destroyed families, has been a culprit in spouse abuse, has been a culprit in child abuse. We understand all of that. We need to remember some other things, too. One of those is this, is some among us struggle with, with alcoholism. Some do. Some people are more prone to addictions than other people may be. For some reason, I don't understand it, but we know it's a reality. Because for some people... Alcohol is a poison, and a little bit of poison leads to more poison, and so on and so on. The reason, and if you don't like it, you can blame me for it. You can hate my guts. The reason we do not use wine in communion on Sunday mornings, we're not going to use wine this morning, we're going to use grape juice, and that is because I know there are people in this congregation who struggle with alcoholism, and I don't want to give them that temptation. I classify it just right where I do, where Paul does, eating meat sacrificed to idols. And what he says is this. He says, uh, you know, if it causes my brother to stumble, may I never eat meat again. After he's already said it's okay for you to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, as long as you don't worship the idol that was sacrificed to My point here is this, is that we have to be sensitive to other people 
people who can't say, I'll just have one. Lori and I learned this the hard way early on in our Christian walk. We had a man come into our house one night that we, we, we were friends with him, and, uh, and he was coming over. I was building some furniture for the Christian school, and he was going to come over and help me do that. And he saw me a few days before the dinner, and he said, what can I bring? I said, well, just pick up a bottle of wine if you want to or something like that, you know, and whatever. So, no, I didn't say that to him. Lori said that to him because she didn't know this. The man was an alcoholic. And so he showed up at the door with a bottle of wine in his hand, and I'm going, oh, my goodness. So we have to be careful, and I know this. I know that some people in here, when you get together, you have some, you share, you share wine and beer and et cetera. Please be overly sensitive to everybody in that room. Be very careful who you do that with. Because you don't want to be the reason for a brother or sister stumbling who's been on the wagon for two or three years now. Be careful. Of course, when I go out and I have my beard too, I don't wear a sign around my neck that says I'm a pastor either. And let me just say this. If you can't say these words, then maybe you need to think about where you're at in regard to this. If my drinking causes another to stumble, may I never drink again. Ever. And just remember, guys and gals, these are not special rules for elders, not special rules for officers, not special rules for people in the congregation. They're people of the family. Equal. In the eyes of God. And according to the rule of God's house. So we will move on from here next week and wrap up chapter 5 and possibly get into chapter 6.